0: Hello and welcome to my podcast, Post-Imperial China. This is Episode 7, Manchuria. Last time, I spoke about the inauguration of the nationalist government in Nanjing in 1927-1928. The 12-year-old Republic of China in Peking was gone. So were the warlords, for the most part. The CCP had been chased from power, and we learned about the emergence of Chiang Kai-shek, after some fits and starts, to his ascendancy to power. In this episode, I want to spend this episode developing the story for the 1930 decade. Manchuria and Japan dominated the news from China to start the decade. I have been breezing through this podcast I always weigh in my mind the balancing act of including too much detail or too little. I have reached a critical point in this history. The 1930s was a pivotal juncture for not just China, but the decade was the preliminary setup for the entire world, and what ultimately came in the next decade. Anyone with even a basic knowledge of world history will know I'm referring to the Second World War. But please bear with me as I slow this chronology down a little bit. I want to do justice explaining all the moving parts to this fascinating and dramatic story. Ultimately, the story in this episode and the ones that follow leads to World War II, the end of the Chinese nationalist government, the rise of Taiwan, the CCP takeover of China, and ending with the organization of the People's Republic of China. Before I get into the nitty-gritty of the specific situation China found itself at the beginning of the 1930s, it will be useful to first explain the international situation facing the Far East. First, there was the well-known worldwide economic depression of the late 1920s and early 1930s. It afflicted the industrial countries the most. China was also affected, but to a much lesser extent than the large industrial nations. China was still largely an agrarian society. Much of the financial upheaval occurring in the more developed nations did not occur in China. At that time, China was not a major trade partner with the West. She was an insignificant player in international trade. China's simple task, then, seemed to merely weather the economic storm of the global depression. Actually, China's finances beginning the 1930s was better than many industrial nations. The same, however, could not be said for Japan. Japan was directly affected by the global depression. Its financial outlook, beginning in the 1930s, was negative. For many Japanese, China was becoming more and more unified and stronger, while Japan was floundering through its ills. There was also geopolitical considerations affecting the Far East. You will remember the Paris Agreements after the first war and the many accords resulting from the Washington Naval Conference in 1921-1922. A chief concept resulting from these meetings was the idea of internationalism. Basically, each nation agreed to act in accordance with international equilibrium and synergy. The idea was that anything a member nation did affected the other member nations. Internationalism, it was believed, was the answer to the unilateralism and regionalism typical before the First World War. I will come back to the Depression and internationalism later as I get into more specifics. As the 1930s began... The world seemed to be crumbling while China was rediscovering its mojo and its sovereignty. Manchuria was a unique situation and a challenge for the new Nanjing government. I already spoke about the region's tough fight for the nationalists to pry from the warlord's hands. The region, Manchuria, I generally refer to that as the northeast corner of China, roughly comprising three provinces, Liaoning, Heilongjiang, and Jilin. The modern-day city of Shenyang, previously known as Mukden, is considered the region's, or was considered, the region's capital. Anyway, Another unique circumstance of Manchuria was Japan's long dominance and control of the region. Whatever the nationalist government in Nanjing accomplished in securing Manchuria did not change Japan's Japan's control of or interest in the region. For those of you listening to this that may be unfamiliar with the region's history let me provide a short History lesson. Japan's efforts to dominate Manchuria really began after the first Sino Japanese War of the late 19th century. Japan recognized the region's strategical importance to Japan. She deemed the region necessary to hold for Japan's protection. Many believed Manchuria was Japan's manifest destiny to control. So by 1930, several generations of Japanese had been inculcated into believing Manchuria was Japan's business. The Chinese Nanjing government wanted to develop the region with Chinese infrastructure. That, however, would undermine long-existing Japanese businesses and industries located there. In particular, the Chinese wanted to build its own railway in Manchuria and discard the Japanese-owned South Manchurian Railway. It was estimated that in 1930, the region was inhabited by as many as 250,000 Japanese citizens. A large portion of these Japanese citizens were Korean farmers, themselves pushed out of their homeland by the Japanese and going to the only place they could, Manchuria. Chinese authorities, because of their concern about competition for resources, which were scarce in the region, namely good arable farmland, forbade any Chinese from renting or selling land to these Korean farmers. The Nanjing government did not care if these immigrants were Korean or Japanese or Russian, for that matter. The poor economic conditions facing the Japanese were no concern to China. For China, national unity and reconstruction were tantamount. The nationalists adopted the stance that they had a right to fight for their national sovereignty and the Worldwide Depression was not China's fault. The Japanese saw it otherwise. They saw the economic decline of their Manchurian businesses and ventures as the fault of the Chinese. The Japanese thought, if only Japan had acted more vigorously to stop China's reunification, then everything would go back to normal. Japan's fixation on China had several prongs. One was military. Not only did Japan see China as a military threat, but Japan wanted to see or wanted to use China as a base from which Japan could face its adversaries, particularly Russia. Another prong was geo-economic. Japan lacked natural resources. She wanted foreign trade with China. China was then a major food supplier to Japan. China was the recipient of at least 25% of Japan's exports. The third prong was cultural, perhaps a bit racist. Japan believed it was the dominant Asian nation and were the only ones capable of repelling Western expansion in the Far East. Manchuria perfectly fit the bill for these Japan or Japanese interests. It already had a 40-year history in that area. Japan truly believed that Manchuria was not part of China. Instead, she believed, it was a region where all Asian races could assemble, live, and prosper, of course, under Japanese control and guidance. Many Japanese in Manchuria were growing increasingly worried for their safety because of Chinese nationalism. There were, in the early 30s, violent clashes in Manchuria between the Korean farmers and the Chinese relations, as could be expected grew worse between China and Japan. The only workable solution many Japanese residing in Manchuria Manchuria believed was to make Manchuria part of Japan. At that time, the Japanese civilian portion of the authorities in Tokyo did not want to press the Manchurian concerns to such an extreme but there was a growing military effort for the Japanese to so push the matter. If the Japanese authorities approved or condoned such drastic efforts, it would be a repudiation of Japan's commitments to internationalism, spirited in the last decade, as I have mentioned. Whether or not there was a systemic premeditated desire by Japan, as it was alleged many years later in the post-World War II war crime trials, to slaughter Chinese and dominate the area has never been proven. But you can be the judge. On September 18, 1931, marked the infamous Mukden incident. In a series of premeditated bomb attacks along the Japanese-controlled South Manchurian Railway, about eight miles from Mukden, was a signal for nearby Kwantung detachments, those are Japanese detachments, to mobilize. The mobilized forces would then attack Chinese troops in the area. Initially, the explosions were blamed on Chinese dissidents, but it soon became clear the attacks were planned by and executed by Japanese forces. The Japanese Kwantung Army was the security force put in place after the Russo-Japanese War to to protect Japan's investments in that area that they attained from Russia. Within weeks, all of southern Manchuria was under Japanese control. And within six months, all of Manchuria had fallen to the Kwantung Army. While the incident was planned and executed by the Kwantung Army, Tokyo more or less had some advanced knowledge of the attack and at least tacitly approved. The attacks immediately put Japan in a box. If Tokyo did not openly condemn the incident, it would jeopardize foreign relations. However, making it difficult for Japan, the individuals involved in the incident were all well thought of by many in Japan, and they stood for powerful Japanese interest. Who saw the Japanese interest in Manchuria as a sign of Japanese pride, strength, and national security? Japan stood at the threshold of repudiating internationalism and rejecting any chance of China's interest in unification and national sovereignty. The entire geopolitical balancing act in East Asia, envisaged by the most powerful nations of the world, was rapidly unraveling. The United States led the charge condemning the Japanese move. It strongly urged Tokyo to renounce the attacks of aggression and to agree to a peaceful resolution of whatever was being disputed The League of Nations, of which Japan was a member, censored Japan. In the end, Japan largely ignored the international urgings and threats. It is noteworthy, however, that despite the near-unanimous histrionics over Japan's actions, not one of the other foreign nations made a physical move to help China. It was clear to many Chinese that the facade of internationalism and cooperation were more important than China's sovereignty and justice. Chiang Kai-shek, now firmly in charge in Nanjing, understood the delicate balance involved. If his government made too much of the matter, it risked rekindling Chinese nationalist feelings and draw his party into a risky, expensive, and costly war with Japan. If he did too little, it risked the Chinese dissidents, particularly the Communists, to rise up and challenge the Japanese or the Nanjing government. Chiang Kai-shek settled on the strategy that as long as Japan seemed willing to still abide by their international promises and commitments, Chiang Kai-shek would work diplomatic channels to resolve the issues with Japan. At that moment, Chiang Kai-shek was busy further consolidating his power in China. Japan pretty much went rogue and was giving the world a giant middle finger. In January of 1932, the Kwantung Army captured Jinzhou which is in the southwest portion of Liaoning province in Manchuria. At the same time, the Japanese also landed troops in the Shanghai International Settlement, under international control then. It was clear Japan was playing for keeps. Japan renamed Manchuria Manchukuo. They were also publicly advocating for Manchurian independence. Japan was committed to its position. To the international community, Japan was arguing or advocating that Manchuria was better off as a melting pot for the Asian races to live and thrive together. Of course, as I've stated, under Japanese control and guidance. Japan posited that her proposal was a better alternative than Western imperialism or Soviet communism, or Chinese nationalism. In the fall of 1932, the League of Nations issued its long-awaited official report of the Manchurian incident. It concluded that Japan had violated its treaty commitments and offered recommendations to Japan if she wished to regain her international footing. By that time, the civilian government in Japan had changed and it was too late. Japan was committed to her actions come hell or high water. As it was, the internationalism vision carved out of the mess of the First World War was already evaporating into unilateralism and regionalism. For China and its new government, this did not portend well. Japan had seized Manchuria with impunity. Aside from the League of Nations censure, Japan withdrew from the League by early 1933. In May of 1933, the Tangku truce resulted in a ceasefire between China and Japan. The truce, however, was viewed as a de facto recognition of Menchukuo by the Nanjing Nationalist Government. The United States was voicing the biggest concerns about Japan's latest actions, but pretty much found herself a lone voice. The European powers largely looked away, except for lip service, denouncing Japan. The Europeans, by 1933, seemed to be more concerned about the rise of Adolf Hitler and his Nazis in Germany. Russia lay low. Seemingly content to stand aside and watch the capitalist nations collapse. Germany welcomed Japan's departure from the League of Nations. A stronger Japan would act as an effective check against Russia. Had it not been for the Japanese, ironically, to seize Manchuria, the Guimindang government may have imploded over the power struggles against Chiang Kai-shek. But the, but the Japanese aggressions would rekindle Chinese nationalism. In my next episode, I want to say a few things about Chiang Kai-shek's leadership of the Guomindang and the Nanjing government. Most of the episode, I will get into the communist movement in China. We'll learn about the initiation and growth of the communist Red Army. Also important was the iconic long march of the communists to flee their destruction by the nationalists. I will end the episode talking about the Xi'an incident of 1936. That brought about the second united front between the Kuomintang and the CCP to fight the Japanese. Thank you. It has been. Hey, pleasure.